Progressive Snapshot can save you money based on how you drive and how much you drive. So the safer you drive, the more money you could save. Now, if you didn't hear that because you were looking at your phone while driving, let me say it again. Seriously, put down your phone. That is so unsafe. If you didn't do stuff like use your phone while driving, you could save money with Progressive Snapshot. But saving or not, just put it down. <clears throat> and if you did hear it the first time because you weren't looking at your phone, nice work. You'd love Snapshot from Progressive because it rewards safe drivers. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Snapshot not available in California and North Carolina or from all agents. There's a whole fleet of them. Look on the ASA. My gosh. They're all going against the wind. It was basically a cube with inside of sphere where the points of the cube uh, were touching outside of the sphere. So this isn't anything that just is limited to the United States. It's a worldwide phenomenon. That UFO podcast is powered by Zencaster. Zencaster is one of the world's leading platforms for recording and hosting podcasts. Zencaster is a modern web-based solution for high-quality audio and video podcast production. With a full suite of professional tools, Zencaster allows podcasters to quickly and seamlessly record their guests remotely and produce their podcasts in studio quality. Check out the links in the show description to find out more. This is James Fox, and you're listening to that UFO podcast. Hi everyone and welcome to That UFO Podcast. My name is Andy and joining me for this very special conversation, I've got Dan. Dan, welcome. Hi, it's great to be here. Yeah, it's good to have Dan on board for one of the interviews. Now, in January, I had the privilege of speaking to Avi Loeb. We talked his background, his interest in UFOs and struggles within the scientific community, having a conversation about ET objects and the like. At the time, Avi told myself and many, many other interviewers, he wants to get involved in studying the phenomenon scientifically, but that requires serious people to get on board and, of course, funding. I'm delighted to say that has since happened and this had resulted in the launch of the Galileo Project. Joining me now to discuss the details and answer your questions is Avi Loeb. Avi, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me. No, it's great to speak to you. Listen, Avi, uh, the announcement last week of the Galileo Project was met with a lot of positivity in the community. It seems to be finally that serious scientific and academic research group we've been looking for. Can you tell us how the project came about? Yeah, so um, the report to Congress came out a month ago uh, about the UAP, Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon, and that report was quite uh, remarkable in the sense that uh, it claimed that some of these objects uh, should be real because they were detected by multiple instruments, infrared uh, sensors, uh, optical cameras, uh, radar systems, and many people seeing the same thing at the same time. And uh, that was a very significant statement because it admits the failure of the intelligence agencies in the U.S. to identify what they are being paid for, basically uh, objects above the sky of the U.S. And uh, it's unusual for a government agency to admit a failure to Congress. Um, and uh, at that point, it looked uh, intriguing enough uh, to me uh, that this subject should move away from the talking points of politicians, national security advisors, 
or military personnel to the realm of science. And uh, interestingly, around the same time, uh, the head of NASA, Bill Nelson, uh, said that he saw some of the classified data. And you should understand that the data that was released to the public is just the tip of the iceberg. There is much more data that, uh, that is classified because it was obtained by classified sensors that the U.S. Uh, do not, does not want to, of course, expose uh, to other nations. And, uh, and Bill Nelson said that now is time for science, scientists to, to address the nature of these objects. And I was thrilled to hear him say that. So I approached uh, people under him and I said, I'm here to serve make your boss happy. And they never got back to me. So a week later, um, I get a note from the administrator at Harvard um, saying, um, you have a new research fund. And I say, what do you mean I have a new research fund? I never had that before. And uh, she says, yeah, someone gave donated money for your research, no strings attached. And I said, okay, but uh, please tell me the name of that person because I want to thank that person, you know. And uh, she said, I don't know, you know, we have to go through the development office at Harvard. And I said, okay, well, that's an elementary request. If I get money, I think it's completely legitimate for me to know who gave me that money and thank that person. I've never met that person. I was not informed by this person that he or she is giving me the money. So please let me know how to approach that person. And it took them a day to get back to me. And then uh, I got a hold of that person. And then uh, a week later, another person showed up, a multi-billionaire showed up in, my, in the porch of my home and had questions about my book. So these people simply either read my book or listened to the thousand interviews that I had over the past six months about the book. The book was translated to 25 languages. It became bestseller in many countries. Um, and so they, uh, I think, were excited by the vision that I'm talking about. And so then uh, within a couple of weeks, I received uh, $1.75 million in donations from people I've never met. At which point I said, I have enough money to uh, move on with a scientific project. And I assembled a team of exceptional scientists, mostly astronomers, and uh, defined the Galileo project. And, uh, and that is a project aimed at assembling new data. So we don't want to look at classified data by the government because that will tie our hands. It will not allow us to be free. Um, we don't want to listen to eyewitness testimonies. You know, science is about reproducibility of results. We want to look at the sky. In most places, the sky is not classified. Astronomers look at the sky all the time. And we want to use telescopes that are connected to cameras that feed the video of the sky to computer systems that will identify mm -hmm. objects of interest and then monitor them. And it's very different from astronomers' uh, job. You know, when a bird flies above uh, a telescope, usually astronomers ignore it. We will look at it. So we are doing, although we are using telescopes, we are doing something different. We're looking for something else. Objects that are flying and look weird. They don't look like a plane. They don't look like a drone. They don't look like a, a bird. Uh, and of course, the way to figure it out is not to use an iPhone 
and look at the sky because that has a very small aperture. You can't really resolve. You, everything looks fuzzy. So it doesn't, you know, a lot of people came to me and said, why not rely on thousands of people that have iPhones and ask them to send you the images? I said, I don't want those images because they will always be fuzzy. That's of no help to me. And I don't want past reports by eyewitnesses because you cannot use it in a scientific evidence. I mean, in the courtroom, you can rely on corroborating evidence of eyewitnesses to put a person in jail. That's in the courtroom. But it doesn't hold water in science. You can't write a scientific paper saying, this person told me that. Okay, that's not sufficient evidence. You have to use instruments that collect quantitative data. And by quantitative, I mean getting a high-resolution image of a UAP, a megapixel image. So to do that, for example, if you have an object the size of a person, okay, and suppose you want to get a megapixel image of that object at a distance of a kilometer. For that, you, you, uh, you need to use a meter-scale telescope. This is just standard optics. So that explains to you why an iPhone cannot do the job. An iPhone has an aperture, a camera that is a millimeter in size, and that's a thousand times smaller than a meter. So you have a resolution that is worse by a factor of a thousand. So I don't want to use an iPhone. I want to use a one meter size telescope. And by the way, I checked online, and there is a website that sells such telescopes. It says, add to the bag. You just click on that, and the cost is half a million dollars. So apparently there are people willing to pay half a million dollars for a one-meter uh, telescope. Otherwise, there won't be add to the bag item. Well, let, let me ask you, Avi, because that means you can buy three of them and still have some change left over at the minute. Now, uh, those donors, I take it they want to remain anonymous because you've not named them. Oh, no, no. Uh, they appear... Uh, as the Philanthropic Advisory Board on okay. the website of the Galileo Project. Uh, and, you know, the announcement that we had on Monday, uh, July 26th, uh, was not to announce a gift. It was to announce a project. Okay, and that's what uh, we are all about, trying to uh, assemble scientific data that is open from telescopes uh, that we are defining right now. So we are deciding what kind of instruments we want to purchase off the shelf, by the way. These are not new instruments that we produce, but things that you can buy and put them together and then test them and put them in locations, various locations. And, you know, we with the money we have, we can get maybe 10 or several tens of telescope systems. But what we really need is a factor of 10 more. So if we had the funding at a level above 10 million, that would really help us if there's anyone out there. Yeah. And if anyone's listening with that sort of revenue, then then please do get in touch with Avi and his group. 1.75 million is a lot of money to, to many people. It's obviously been enough to get the project started. What can you begin to accomplish with $1.75 million in funding? Well, we can produce at least 10 telescope systems each of which, you know, will uh, provide us with uh, high-resolution imaging of the sky, basically a video of the sky where, wherever it's located. And we have to decide where to put these systems. 
And the reason I said 100 telescopes are needed is based on the rate by which report, UAP reports came, uh, you can get a sense of how frequently they come along. And if you want to detect something in a year timescale, you need 100 telescopes. Uh, but then where to put them is a matter of uh, debate. Uh, for example, you can put them on mountaintops. That's where astronomical observatories are usually located, simply because the atmosphere is more dilute up there and you don't have as much blurring of the images. So you can look towards the horizon and see a great distance. And uh, But we also want to sample other locations. So having more telescopes has the other added benefit that you can spread them in many different locations. So, for example, if UAP concentrate, cluster in some preferred locations, uh, the more locations you visit, the better chance you have of finding them. You mentioned the classified data. Uh, that obviously was part of the UAP task force report. Have you or your group been privy to any of that classified data, which would influence your decisions going forward? No. And in fact, I don't want to see anything classified because then the government uh, would tie my hands. I wouldn't be able to fr freely speak about anything I do because even subconsciously, if I collect, assemble new data, uh, there would be this risk that I speak because I know something else, you know, and uh, I just want to be free. As a scientist, I prefer to deal with open data. The public can see it. And then the public can also analyze it in a different way than our team will. So that's the beauty of science, that it's transparent. You share evidence-based knowledge. And what happens right now, or until the Galileo project was announced, was that um, you know there would be these claims of something, some unusual objects, and then the public would speculate. And the scientific community would ridicule and dismiss it. And then uh, nobody would actually clear up uh, the fog. What is really going on? And, you know, you, would, you don't want to ask uh, politicians or military personnel to explain what we see on the sky. It's just like asking a plumber to bake you a cake. You know, these people were not trained as scientists. What you, what you want to do is ask astronomers to figure out what we see on the sky. So on the Galileo project page, there's a there's a really cool link that is called a Research Affiliates. And I've noticed over the past week, there have been a few names added there. I wonder if you might uh, be able to talk about some of those names and, you know, what work you plan to do together. Yeah, so that was the amazing thing that, um, well, first of all, that a few weeks ago, I, a number of individuals approached me and, and gave me this uh, sum of money of $1.75 million. Um, and then uh, after the project was announced, I got thousands of emails from people that want to get involved, then you see some of them as affiliates. And um, it basically underscores what I was trying to say for six months now <laughs> in a thousand interviews, which is that scientists should not reject or ridicule this subject because the public is very interested. And it's an opportunity to attract funds to science and to attract young people, uh, talented people, to science. And it's a missed opportunity to say, we know the answer in advance. We don't need to look at the sky. Uh, it's similar to what the philosophers say uh, during the days of Galileo. They did not want to look through the telescope of Galileo, and they, they knew that the sun moves around the earth, and they put Galileo in house arrest. 
today Galileo would have been cancelled on social media. So uh, we don't want to repeat that mistake. We want to collect data. And what's the worst thing that can happen? That out of private donations, my group ends up collecting data and finding that these UAP are some natural phenomena that we haven't anticipated. How bad could it be? I mean, so we explain something that other people speculated about in the past, and we figure it out. Why should anyone have a problem with that? Except for the same reason that philosophers had a problem with Galileo many centuries ago. Because it bothers them to look for the evidence. They think they know the answer before checking the evidence. And that's unfortunate because I would think that we learned the lesson. We are in the 21st century, right? We say that science leads the way, yet scientists behave just like the philosophers during the days of... So how is that possible? How did we get to that point? It's completely unclear to me. I think this subject should be part of the mainstream. Why should we search for dark matter of specific types? You know, it's a matter of curiosity. We don't know what most of the matter in the universe is, okay? So then we say, okay, maybe, maybe it's weakly interacting massive particles. Okay, we don't know that for sure. We're searching in the dark. So then we invest hundreds of millions of dollars, you know, 40 years of search that produced nothing. We just have limits. And... I asked once uh, an experimentalist, uh, how long will you continue to search? You haven't found it. You put limits. And he said, as long as I'm funded. So I'm saying, okay, that's legitimate. That's part of the mainstream. If you ask any astronomer, he or she will tell you, of course, we need to search for dark matter. It makes a lot of sense. Then you tell them it's a search in the dark, right? So why not search also for technological debris that was left behind by some civilizations that existed before us because we know that half of the sun-like stars had a planet the size of the Earth, roughly at the same separation. We know that we exist, so we're just looking for things like us in our past. Why not? It, it they, makes would sense. You, they would tell you, because it's a speculation, because we have no extraordinary evidence for that, we should ban any discussion of, on that. And I say, why didn't you ban, ban any discussion on weakly interacting massive particles when there was no extraordinary evidence that weakly interacting massive particles are the dark matter? Of course, you might say, there is dark matter, we know it exists. Yes, but not necessarily weakly interacting massive particles. Yet, you invested hundreds of millions of dollars in that particular direction, Okay, spent decades searching for it, and haven't found it, this particular particle. So I have nothing against that. It could be part of the mainstream. And by the way, if the dark matter is weakly interacting massive particles, it will have very little impact on our daily lives, right? It will not appear in the news every day afterwards if we find it. It will be a Nobel Prize. It will give some recognition to the scientists that find it, but it will not have a major impact on society. But if we find a relic of another civilization that is smarter than we are, that would have a huge impact on society. So how dare we ignore that question, ridicule it, push it to the side, and not invest any funds 
in the search because we need extraordinary evidence before we will even contemplate the legitimacy of discussing that possibility. In the 21st century, when you look at Twitter, you see scientists ridiculing this subject. How is that possible? I mean, I don't know the answer. Maybe you know. It, it reminds me of um, the work with black holes and exoplanets. You know, many, many years ago, people theorized about these. We just gave Sir Roger Penrose a Nobel Prize um, for theorizing about it. And we didn't have a goddamn photo of the thing. And it lit the world up when we released the photo of the black hole. So just imagine what a photo of an extraterrestrial well, craft would do. Yeah, so I actually wrote the first paper that forecast that the first image should be taken of M87, which is the image of the black hole that we now have. I wrote the first paper about uh, 12 years ago about that when nobody discussed necessarily looking at M87 for that photo, okay? And I remember back then, it was not a very popular subject. And, you know, I worked on many such things along the years that I've been practicing astronomy. And I realized that indeed, as you say, many times scientists just dismiss things that become very fashionable eventually, that become mainstream. And exoplanets is a good example. When I was a postdoc that I just entered astrophysics, people were saying, oh, maybe stars do not have uh, planets at all. You know, we don't know that, therefore don't speak about it. And there was a paper written in 1952, okay, by uh, an astronomer, Otto Struve, who said, well, if there happens to be a planet like Jupiter close to a star, we can actually detect the effect that it has on the star. It will pull it back and forth in a measurable way. Or it will block the light from the star when it passes in front of it in a measurable way. And that paper was ignored for four decades by time allocation committees. And I know from observers that were, you know, that were practicing at that time that they made proposals for using telescope time to look for such things. And these proposals were denied because the astronomers were saying, we know why Jupiter is so far from the sun. Having a Jupiter close to a star makes no sense. Therefore, we should not search for it. And then in 1995, the first hot Jupiter around a sun-like star was discovered. And the Nobel Prize a few years ago was given to... Uh, uh, Quilos and, and Mayor. And you ask yourself, okay, well, nothing bad really happened. You know, it just took some decades of delay. My point is, for every baby that was born barely, you know, after a long time, there must be a lot of babies that were never born because the scientific community continued to ridicule the subject for decades, even now. And one such baby may be technological relics of other civilizations. And it's not being born because nobody puts funds to the search. And then everyone says there is no extraordinary evidence. Therefore, we shouldn't put any funds to the search, which is a self-fulfilling prophecy. I was asked in a forum, uh, how long can you know, our civilization remain ignorant about the existence of others out there? And my answer was forever. You know, If we decide not to look through our windows and claim that we have no neighbors, and that we are the smartest in the universe, we will not find the neighbors. But that doesn't mean that they are not there. They will not go away just because we are not looking through our windows. 
Avi, I want to talk about those windows and what we're looking at now. As a complete layman to astronomy and astrophysics and everything that entails, when I think telescope, I think of looking up at the sky and looking at the stars. These telescopes you're, you're looking at buying, adding to your bag and checking out, hopefully, are they going to be able to see an object, for example, like Oumuamua? Would they be, be able to see that with any degree of clarity or is that too far away? And to the extreme, how close up could we see objects? For example, if one of your telescopes was placed in or around the Catalina Islands area, and there happened to be some uh, movement or some, you know, activity going on involving UAPs, could you see those up close as well? Yeah, so what we can see with telescopes on the ground uh, are only objects that are within the Earth's atmosphere. Uh, we can resolve them, only those. Uh, an object like Oumuamua, which is roughly the size of a football field, at a distance that is a fraction of the distance to the sun, cannot be resolved with any telescope, even the biggest telescopes we have on Earth. So what we need to do there is, uh, when we identify uh, an interstellar object, an object that came from outside the solar system, that looks weird in the sense that it doesn't look like a comet or an asteroid, the way Oumuamua was, because there was no cometary tail and it was pushed away from the sun. Something that looks weird. And if we see it a year in advance before it approaches us, we can send the spacecraft equipped with a camera that will intercept its trajectory and take a close-up photograph. Okay? And the OSIRIS-REx is a mission that aimed to get to the asteroid Bennu. And it landed on it, and it took a close-up photograph. And if you look at the photograph, it's clear that this is a rock. And it actually took a sample from Bennu that it will bring back to Earth in 2023. So here is an example of a space mission not only taking a photograph, but actually landing on an object. So just imagine doing the same with an artificial object we could import the technology back to Earth. So that's what we need to do in space for interstellar objects. We need to intercept their trajectory. And the Vera Rubin Observatory will come online in two years. Uh, we'll have much more sensitivity than the PANSTARS uh, Observatory in Hawaii that detected uh, Oumuamua. And uh, with Vera Rubin, we might get uh, perhaps uh, an object like that every month. So there would be many opportunities to follow up. And uh, part of the Galileo project is to develop software that will be used um, on the data coming from the Vera Rubin Observatory, such that we can identify those interstellar objects that look weird and then uh, design a space mission that will uh, take a close-up photograph of them. So we are definitely interested in every object coming close to Earth that looks unusual, and we want to get a high-resolution image of it. And, of course, as you said, as you uh, hinted, the way to look at objects in our atmosphere is to use telescopes on the ground, but uh, for objects that are far away, we need to send a spacecraft uh, to get a good image of them. One such group that you have um, started a relationship with would be UAPX, which is Gary Voorhees, uh, Kevin Day, and others. How does how do those relationships come about, and what are your plans to work with them going forward? Right, so there are various organizations that existed in the past. And I should clarify that um, 
the Galileo project is different because it's the first time that you have a group of just scientists, uh, astronomers mostly, coming together and designing a set of instruments that they will build and they will put in place and they will test and they will do the data assembly and analysis, just like in a scientific experiment. Now, all past groups that uh, involve, for example, I mean, one that you mentioned, UAPX, but there are others, all of them were partnering with scientists. They were composed, let's say, of military personnel that witnessed some UAP or uh, they want to engage the public. You know, there is uh, another one called Sky Hub that wants to distribute uh, instruments uh, in people's uh, backyard. I don't, we don't want to do that because we want to, well, first of all, we don't have enough instruments to distribute. We want to have full control over the instruments. It's not a matter of the public doing whatever they want in the backyard. It, you know, that's the way you do science. You have to have a con, you have to design your experimental setup and then have full control over it and collect the data yourself. The scientists should do it. So we are not partnering with scientists. We are the scientists doing it. So we don't need to go to other scientists and ask to partner with them like UAPX is doing. UAPX is partnering. We don't partner. We are the scientists. We are doing it. Then with the public, of course, if we have data, the public is welcome to analyze the data that we will make public. You know, we, we can allow other people to look at the data and look for things we haven't noticed. That's perfectly fine. But we will collect the data because it's a scientific experiment, just like you don't let the public get into your laboratory. You know, if you have a laboratory doing an experiment, scientific experiment, you don't just open the door and say, anyone from the street, come in and do whatever you want with the instruments. That will not allow you to monitor what's happening with your instrument. You don't ask people to come with their cell phones and look at your instruments and do, you know, and, and put their cell phones on your instruments. Like, this is not the way science is done. So this is the first time the Galileo Project by which professional scientists are taking the role of leading the way. Okay? And that has to be made clear because it implies two things. One, that the project will do the data assembly, uh, you know, the data collection, uh, and do a scientific analysis of the data. And the data will be based on instruments that the project team designs and puts in place. And the second is, there is a lot of discussion out there by people that are not scientists. Well, maybe there are wormholes, maybe there are space-time engines, all kinds of ideas that have no foundation in modern science. And I should remind everyone that physics, the standard model of physics, is tested over and over again in numerous experiments. It's not something that you can just have a glass of wine and say, oh, well, maybe there is a wormhole doing this and that. You can't do that because we know what physics is about. You know, just look at the textbooks. You know, there are laws of physics that are refined and very well tested. And if there is a tiny deviation, for example, if the magnetic moment of the muon 
which is a particle that doesn't really affect anything in our daily life, if that magnetic moment deviates by a little bit from what very complicated theoretical calculations on computers are predicting with uncertainties, so it's even the deviation is even not obvious because the uncertainties are comparable to the deviation that was measured in Fermilab in some laboratory, even that by itself gets the headlines and could be worth a Nobel Prize. Okay, just to give you a sense. So then someone's saying, oh, maybe it's a wormhole or time, you know, space-time engine. That is completely irresponsible. You can't do that. Because if that was true, then our understanding of the universe could have been modified. You know, if you know something like that, you will get the Nobel Prize over and over and over and over again. Okay, so you can't just say it lightly. I mean, of course you can say it, just like you can say that you are Napoleon. You know, many people could say that they are Napoleon. They can say whatever they want. The question is whether there is evidence for that. And the Galileo project, of course, will assemble data and we will use the tools of science, what we know about physics, to explain what we see. If we fail, if it looks like the laws of physics cannot account for the very detailed information that we assemble, then maybe there would be room to consider the possibility that something else is uh, at work. But we, we are not there, you know, and you can't, you can't just say, oh, let's break the laws of physics just in order to explain some fuzzy images. Well, hopefully down the line, you do get those Nobel Prizes over and over again for finding things that you cannot explain that you're finding with these telescopes and they pay themselves back over and over. But Abby, I, and I should say that would be of much more significance because it would mean that we don't understand the universe. Not just that there is a smarter kid on the block, that something in our fundamental understanding of the universe at large was, you know, missing. I always like to think, and this is in extreme layman's terms, that one day we're going to understand that we do understand it, but it's very, very basic. Even at our highest level scientists and mathematicians, we find another civilization, you know, one of your telescopes picks up something that we go, ah, we were kind of on the right lines, but here's more to it. And that would be my hope. Uh, and I'm sure as a scientist, like you've talked about as well, that would be your hope. You want to find out new and you want to uncover things you can explore and that's the whole the whole purpose of science isn't it to that right. new exploration but it and that's should be where... based on evidence you see that's my point my, my fundamental yeah. point is we need better evidence before we jump into those conclusions about uh, modifications of physics Absolutely. Now, listen, we had a lot of listener questions, and in the time we've got left, I want to get to some of those. Quite a few of them, Avi, were based uh, around one point, and uh, Katie and Barry both sent in questions very similar. They want to know how you are planning on looking at specific areas in our atmosphere, uh, such as hotspots like Guadalupe, Catalina Islands, high magnetic fields. How are you going to pick and choose where you point these initial telescopes? Right, that's an excellent question. We are discussing it. And of course, the more telescopes we have, the better we can sample uh, many different locations. And uh, the best locations, I should say, in terms of visibility are mountaintops. That's why astronomical observatories are on mountaintops because the atmosphere is more dilute and blurring of images is less severe. So you can see a large distance into the horizon. and uh, But it doesn't mean that that's the only 
type of locations that that we want to be at and um, it all depends on how much funding we have as to how many telescopes we will have and how many locations we can sample but this is a very important question when you're coming at this from such a pure scientific point of view is there going to be any weight or gravitas given to again i'll use the area of catalina off the coast of California, where there have been numerous reported incidents. I know there's a heavy military presence in those areas too, but would that be something that would sway you towards looking at one of those areas? Yeah, so the fundamental question there is, uh, are there more reports coming from such areas just because they're being patrolled more often? Uh, You know, the military patrols uh, its own facilities. Um, And... uh, the only way to find out is to have telescopes in many different locations uh, and, and indeed sample also the location that you mentioned. We don't want to interfere with any military activity. So uh, there will be some limitations of, you know, some areas where we cannot really monitor the sky, and but we will do whatever is allowed. Uh, Bikir had a question for you. He is curious as to your opinion, Avi, on if the stigma regarding UFOs has changed at all within your community, given the increased media attention, credible testimony, but also the announcement of the, of the project. How has that been in the last week or so? In the last week, um, I think people are looking for new excuses of why to dismiss it still. Uh, so, you know, I heard statements like, uh, the rich are getting richer. Uh, I'm not rich, you know, and uh, I didn't have those those funds before. It's not as if I'm getting richer because I had funds before. It's because the public agrees with the vision of collecting evidence on objects we don't understand. You know, it reminds me of the exchange I had with my publicist in the UK. So when the book became a bestseller, um, the publicist said, "Great job, Avi. You are make you know you are doing great interviews, and uh, it looks like the book is selling very well." So I corrected him. I said, "My purpose is not to sell the book. You have to understand. I mean, of course, you are a publicist. You want it to sell, but that's not my purpose. I want to convey a message, and if the public would not agree with my message." I wouldn't change the message. The book would not sell. You would not be happy. But I will not change my message just to make you happy. And so he said, sorry, I didn't really mean that. Uh, But it's exactly that misconception that a lot of people think that the resonance between my message and the public is tailored so that I will get the benefit. That's not at all the point. In fact, it's exactly the opposite, that the public supports that vision. And that's why I'm advocating for it, because I think the public supports science, and therefore science should attend to the public's interest. That's what I'm doing. Now, I'm going to uh, read another question uh, from Ewood, and he talks about another member of the public, uh, Mick West. You may have heard of him. Yes. Um, he recently put out a tweet after the announcement of the project about good UAP data needing to have at least three points of vantage with a known distance between the camera sensors to a good possibility of triangulation. Are you considering all that in your approach? And while we're on the subject, would you consider having a a pseudo-debunker like Mick West 
give advice on the data itself? Well, first I should say I, I participated in the podcast with him. Actually, that podcast was coordinated without telling me that he will be on it. I'm not sure why, but suddenly he appeared out of the blue and I had a discussion. He seemed quite reasonable, but the point is he's not a scientist. I want the team to be of scientists. Now, of course, he gets a lot of attention because he debunks and a lot of people want these things to be debunked. We don't have that agenda of debunking or not debunking. We, we just want to get to let the evidence guide us. And, you know, I told my team, the Galileo team, keep your eyes on the ball, not on the audience. And I think Mick, if you, if you uh, wanted to, to define him, you would say he keeps his eyes on, the, on his audience. You know? And now, what do I mean by keep your eyes on the ball? That if you play basketball, you want your team members to be the best players that handle the ball in the best possible way. You don't want your team member to be someone looking at the audience and making the audience cheer. That's not the purpose of the, of the game. So if I'm selecting members of my research team, I will not select a cheerleader. I will select the best basketball player that I can think of to be in the team. And so that's why I selected scientists. And so asking me whether I would like to make the crowd cheer by selecting Mick West that debunks until we show him everything. That's not really my purpose. My purpose is to get the ball to the net, okay? Which means, in this case, getting the best possible evidence, which means getting the best instruments, which means getting the best scientists to select the best instruments. So um, I just wanted to kind of ask, um, there's going to be people listening to this who are inspired by you kind of skating to where the puck's going to be or to where the ball's going to be, to stick with your analogy. Um, and I just wanted to know what those people could do to end up working with you on something like Project Galileo or Project Galileo itself. You know, Andy's just had a, a new baby. Um, and I think maybe maybe uh, that baby will grow up to, to be a colleague of yours. Right. So <clears throat> there are various ways to support the project. One is, of course, uh, financially, we're trying to establish a mechanism for crowdfunding. Uh, but if anyone uh, is interested in contributing more than $50,000, there is a channel already uh, in existence for that. And they just need to contact me by email. But separate from that, there is uh, uh, help in terms of uh, the work we do and help in terms of support, you know, on, on in terms of public outreach, in terms of uh, communicating on social media, because, you know, we just can't do everything. And um, I would say that anyone that feels enthusiastic about the project should simply either write me or uh, send an email to the project. There is a link on the project website, uh, the Galileo Project at uh, Harvard University. And um, and and that will, um, you know, establish the path uh, for further communications. You know, I can address the question of what's best depending on the person that approaches us. I'd like to follow up, Avi. Uh, Stephen had a question about if incontrovertible proof is found, will the Galileo project potentially try to communicate with any UAPs? 
That's a very good question. So my, I mean, it really is a question we haven't yet decided on, but um, I wrote a Scientific American essay that was not yet uh, posted on this question of how to respond and what to do. And of course, in my view, the first thing to do is passively detect what the UAP is doing, what that object is doing, uh, what kind of information is it seeking. And that could give us a hint as to what the intent of this UAP is. You know, if it's indeed the, from an extraterrestrial origin, what kind of information is it trying to get? And then, of course, you can monitor how this object responds to what we do, unrelated to the object. Like, if we do some activity, the object responds in some way. And finally, you might want to engage with it. But that's, I think, the last step, because... You don't want to get into a situation of a confrontation without uh, a good reason, okay? And it may well be that the intentions are all good, but it's not clear. It could be a Trojan horse, uh, something that looks innocent, that uh, serves a, a different purpose. And, you know, the only way to find out the intent uh, would be to use our own computer systems, uh, AI that will help us interpret the intent, sort of like relying on our kids to tell us what the meaning of content that we find in the, on the internet, you know, because they're more computer savvy. So we rely on our computer systems to figure out their computer systems. Um, it will be a race of AI systems, so to speak. Um, I, I, I look forward to that. Uh, if, if it happens, you know, it will be really challenging and exciting to see if our AI systems can figure out their AI systems. But uh, for now, we are not there yet. We, we still have to see if we find something. Uh, you know, like an extraterrestrial object. Yeah, I'm sure it would be a very nice problem to come across. And to follow up on that, another question from Ebenezer. If you did manage to come across what, what would essentially be potential evidence or proof of extraterrestrial life, whether that is living or one of these extraterrestrial technological relics you could potentially pick up, what would the process be as a private organization to get that information out? Because surely if, if you are there and, you know, whichever room it may be and you, you find out, you could tweet that straight away. You could be on your Facebook. But I imagine there are other organizations and, and government that would want to know first. Is that something that would have to come into your thinking? Well, I think it's just like any other scientific discovery, right? Uh, you can ask what's the protocol. Uh, it depends on the implications, right? It depends on the context. Um, very often scientists find something and decide about a press conference and present it. I, obviously, what you would like is for me to bring the piece of equipment and show it to you, right? That's what, yeah. But um, uh, it really depends on what we find. You know, it's like a fishing expedition. We send the hook and we don't know what, the, what kind of fish we will catch. And depending on the fish, uh, you know, I will give you different different answers. And if the fish seems to be extremely exotic, you know, and, and looks very colorful and um, behaves in ways that are really amazing, it may have to involve the government. I don't know. But um, otherwise, you know, my natural tendency is to say, you know, we are doing a scientific experiment. We are collecting the data in an open fashion, We're doing an analysis that is transparent. You know, we'll just share it. I mean, I don't... It's not about us. You see, that's the thing. People very often attack me personally. It's not about me. It's about the future of humanity. If we have found evidence like that, 
it will change the course of history. It will have a huge impact on society. So the conclusion from that is, first, we should never abandon this search because it has huge implications. In my book, Extraterrestrial, I call it Oumuamua's wager. So if Oumuamua turns out to be of artificial origin, you know, that has huge implications. We can't ignore that possibility. So that's the first thing. We should do the search. And of course, the second thing is, you know, that um, it's not about us because it will have a huge impact on, on everyone. Uh, it, you know, it, it will change the way we perceive our place in the universe. It will change the way we interact with each other. You know, a lot of human history is shaped by people trying to feel superior relative to other people. There was even a war called the Second World War, which was initiated by racist agenda by the Nazi party that they are superior relative to other human beings. But if you think about another civilization being far more advanced than we are, then all of this is ridiculous. You know, how can you feel superior relative to another member of the human species just based on the color of their skin or the, or the ethnic origin if there is something out there that is far more superior than you are? The first thing it teaches you is modesty. And second thing it teaches you is that all of your previous concerns are completely irrelevant, you know? <laughs> yeah. And that, that, that leads me, Avi, just before we wrap up, I want to ask you, um, this organization, the project, the Galileo Project, do you see it as an American effort, given your location and the people involved? Or do you want to get people from all around the world, the scientific community involved? All over the world. I think it's a project of humanity, you know? And the idea, I was asked once, how do I define an intelligent culture, intelligent civilization? My definition is a culture that follows the guiding principles of science, meaning cooperation and sharing of evidence-based knowledge. And, you know, there are two elements to it. One is cooperation and sharing. And the second is evidence-based. And, of course, what we are trying to do in the Galileo Project is evidence-based. And what you asked about is cooperation. And I say, definitely, because that's the guiding principle of science. We want everyone to be involved, irrespective of where they are. Uh, of course, unless this UAP belong to some foreign country, you know, that country might not want us to reveal that. <laughs> Just before I ask my final question, Avi, uh, Dan has got one for you. So this is on, on a bit of a lighter note. Um, I love going outside and, and looking at the stars at night and sometimes listening to music. Um, and I wondered if there was this particular piece of music that you like to listen to uh, when you do the same. Um, well, I enjoy very much uh, classical music, uh, uh, especially Bach and Mozart. And, um, uh, but I also enjoy very much uh, the, the latest music, you know, like the most modern that my daughters like. And um, um, in fact, uh, just a few weeks ago, I was interviewed by a 22 years old uh, pop singer named King Princess, and we pretty much agreed on everything. Uh, I checked her out. She wanted to speak with me. Uh, the claim was that I'm her favorite scientist. So I said, okay, and I checked her out. And, you know, I liked her songs very much, and we discussed extraterrestrials. And, you know, I pretty much feel the same as when I was a kid. You know, I, I haven't changed much. Uh, if you ask people that knew me back then, uh, and I find the science to be uh, a privilege to maintain your childhood curiosity 
and basically behave like a kid. Let's let's not pretend we know more than we actually know, you know, and, and, and let's figure it out ourselves, you know, collecting new data, finding what the reality teaches us. And we might get bruised, you know, we might uh, have the wrong ideas sometimes, but we should be modest. It's not about us. I'm, I'm not aiming to get any prize, not getting to get more revenues on my book. It's really about finding what reality is. And Avi, final question before you go. When realistically, with the setup you have, with the funding you have currently, when do you have a gut feeling, and I'm asking a scientist this, that you could initially have some sort of results? Do you put a time limit on that? So my hope is that within a year, we will start having some useful data. And it really depends on how quickly we buy the instruments, probably within uh, weeks or months from now. And then uh, we will have to test them and then eventually place them. Uh, but I, I think it's a matter of a year before we will get to the point where we can start assembling data and uh, we might get some interesting data in. Avi, it's been wonderful having you on the podcast again. And I look forward to the Galileo project producing some results to excite everyone and look forward to future updates from you. Thank you so much. That is all for this week's show. Thank you very much for listening. Please remember to leave the podcast a review on your chosen platform. You can like, retweet and subscribe. That would all be very much appreciated. The shows are being uploaded onto YouTube as we speak more and more. You can sign up at patreon.com forward slash that UFO podcast to access shows ad free as well. Please get in touch on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, that UFO podcast. Of course, on Twitter, it's at UFO, U-A-P-A-M. And again, folks, as always, keep looking up. You never know what you might see. It wasn't a tic-tac and not quite a saucer, more like a hubcap designed by Chaucer, a little baroque and quite steampunk, like Alice was playing bass for the Parliament of The little fucker hovered right outside of my window, and when I shoved out the screen, he made it an issue.
To show you how easy it is to file a claim with GEICO, we hired a nature show host. In a native habitat of a suburban driveway, the poor victim of a broken windshield is left assessing his vehicle utterly helpless. Well, not true. If he's got GEICO, he can file a claim online, over the phone, or with his handy mobile app. But like a lone gazelle, he'll suddenly be left to fend for himself, awaiting his terrible fate. Nope. GEICO will assign him a designated claims team to help him out, too. So the gazelle gets his car fixed and everything. Wow. Nature is so cool. GEICO. Great service, without all the drama. Drivers who switch and save with Progressive save over $700 on average, and those savings add up. Imagine what you could buy in the future. Hey, remember how 20 years ago I switched to Progressive? Well, now it's the future, and I used all those savings to buy this new hologram phone. Because, you know, it's the future, and everything is holograms now. So switch to Progressive and save big, because those savings can add up in the future. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National annual average insurance savings by new customer surveyed who saved with Progressive in 2020. Potential savings will vary.